All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. Pretty new listeners to the Money Wise program. Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 33rd year of business and with offices in Corpus Christi and San Antonio. We have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Money Wise podcast on Apple Podcast, where you can leave a comment and don't forget to like the show. Well, as we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I turn it over to my brother Jeff to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down about 1,748 points or 4.8%. The S&P 500 last week was down about 159 points or 3.4%. And the NASDAQ last week was down about 886 points, or 5.5%. Now, for the year to date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 13%. The S&P 500 year-to-date is up 20.8%. And the NASDAQ year-to-date is up 17%. Well, it's been a few weeks since we've had a new MoneyWise program, and what a week to come back after being off for a few Omicron strikes. Omicron. Well, and I would also Omicron say, Fed. Fed. Yeah, the it's the Omicron. It's, it's the, the Omicron, Fed. Yeah, it's, let's just call it Fedicrom. Fedicrom. We'll call it Fedicrom. And that and that all began on Black Friday after Thanksgiving, where this doctor in South Africa announces this new variant of COVID, and not to again. I know COVID has affected a lot of people, a lot of listeners. We're, we're not making light of COVID by any stretch of the imagination. But I think this is something that investors are going to have to get accustomed to over the next several years when it comes to their portfolio and the market's reaction to these different variants. It's almost kind of like a hamster on a wheel where we have different variant variants. We have some panic, possibly some panic selling in the market like we saw on Black Friday. Then we come around to getting the vaccines, getting the boosters, maybe a new or an updated booster, things die down, and then we come right back around to the other end of the circle to another variant popping up, which is inevitably going to happen when you're dealing with a virus. That's what viruses do. Now, we're still several weeks away from hearing more in-depth, detailed results about this new variant, its transmissibility how dangerous it is, if it's less dangerous or more dangerous than the Delta variant. But what we've heard so far is that it's not as dangerous. It might be more transmissible, 
but I know the cases that showed up this past week, the first in San Francisco, I think, I believe I read on Friday that some have shown up in New York State, that these that they kind of found out that they had the variant after the fact, that the people were vaccinated, they had very mild symptoms. In fact, I believe one person that had it didn't even realize they had it, and they fully recovered. So that is a good sign, but until I think the market has definitive results from further testing of this variant it's going to be shaky in and around here so whether for sure the the black friday response in the market the worst black friday ever in terms of performance in the history of the market on a half day no less on a half on a half trading day uh absolutely has to be laid at the feet of this of this new this new covid variant news getting into the the new week, I mean, Monday we had a nice little recovery, and then I believe it was on Tuesday that it was, a, I think it's scheduled quarterly meeting that the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell and Treasury Secretary Yellen had in Congress, and the uh, statement from Chairman Powell was definitely a little more hawkish. Uh, the talk now is that the taper in terms of the the ending of the buying of of bonds that has they've already started reducing the amount of bonds being bought they started in November and the plan originally we had discussed it about a month ago that uh the bond buying was going to end around June of 2022 well the the message from the from chairman Powell during his testimony was well we may be speeding that up he didn't say they were what that meant thinking about it. Uh, but there was definitely going to be some discussions about it. And there are other Fed governors that had come out and had basically let you know made comments that they're going to be voting for speeding it up when they have another meeting here in a few weeks. Because we've got we've got at least one more Fed meeting before the year ends. And so that definitely got the market riled up because the market, despite everything that has been said by the Federal Reserve Chairman, that the ending of bond buying does not necessarily mean the beginning of interest rate increases. The market has interpreted that, and I think the reason why the market has reacted the way it has is that interest rate changes, at least from the Federal Reserve's point of view, are going to be happening sooner than the market expects. And given the timing in the year and other things that are going on, uh, the inclination has just been to sell. I think there just hasn't been a lot of buy. There's Why buy here at the end of the year? If you've already got your positions established like an Apple and all the great, all the big five stocks that have gone up so much in 20. 21, 2020, 2019, do you really want to add more to it right here? So if there's no one really buying these stocks to any great extent, and you've got all the Robin Hooders and the the renters of stocks out there and the hedge funds with the machines at their control, well, you're going to get some volatility in the market. And that is what we've got in spades here in the last week. The most uh, this is volatility. I don't think we've seen this kind of volatility this year. You got to go back yeah, to last year to see this kind of volatility. And I would hazard to guess, though I didn't check this out before we went to air, 
that the performance for the Dow in the last week, maybe this may have been one of the worst weeks of the year. Well, and and I think you hit a big point about the machines because I, I think it goes without saying what we saw on Black Friday and just the that was the algos. extreme volatility this past week where we're down one day, up the next, down the next we, day, up the next. But day, we're down two or three percent. You know, we're we're up, you know we're up five hundred one day, down five hundred the next. But when but like you said, when you have thinner buying and you have more of the renters of stocks, and you have the algorithms out there, that's when you see this extreme volatility because there's just no one going in and buying in this last month of 2021. Well, let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Money Wise podcast on Apple Podcasts, where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So just continuing the recap of the happenings on Wall Street this past week. And as we said in the first segment, I think we called it the, the Fedicrom because we had the Omicron variant and the Federal Reserve's comments on Tuesday to Congress where they were talking about the potential of speeding up the tapering. But, Jeff, I just wanted to reiterate a point that you made, and this is coming from past statements from the Federal Reserve, that just because the Federal Reserve may or may not be ending their bond buying or the tapering sooner, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be raising interest rates or become more hawkish in their interest rate policy sooner. Now, I know there's a lot of different schools of thought that I've definitely been reading and hearing about with some analysts, some economists thinking, okay, we could see one interest rate increase next year. It could be three. It could be on this date. It could be on that date. But we just don't know because it is so data-driven. And I would say that as we get into the new year, if, if we see that this variant is a lot less mild, maybe more contagious, but less mild, we're obviously not going to shut down the economy in the United States. That's not going to happen, period. I just don't see that, even with the Biden administration. They know how devastating that's going to be on the economy. But as things continue to unfold from a supply chain standpoint, if things can get sped up to where we alleviate some of these bottlenecks and start to see inflation come down, this could give more cover to the Fed to extend the timing of when they could potentially become more hawkish or start to raise overnight interest rates. <laughs> here no we way. go. Now, I know no this way. is the big debate here we we're go. having here in the no office. Way. It's called it Fedicrom. It's like a roller coaster ride. No. But, uh, so. I, I, I think <clears> – I don't think the chairman would have put that out there unless he had really high probability to believe that they were actually going to speed it up. So my guess is, is that we're going to hear speed up uh, when they raise rates or no, speed, speed, up the no, taper speed or both. Well, I, I'm not sure that they're really going to be talking about the, the, the raising of the rates. I think they're going to really more focus on speeding up the taper first and, and let the, and then let's let the, because here's the ironic thing. 
we're all sitting there talking about them raising interest rates potentially sooner than later based on some comments that the Federal Reserve Chairman said this past week about accelerating the end of the of the taper. But what have interest rates actually done? Really since in the in the last two weeks it's been well it's been three weeks since we've done a show. A live what show. Did, what did the ten year finish today? One thirty one thirty seven, one thirty eight. Yeah, one point three five six. And yeah, so you you have to go back to and I'm looking here at a chart, you have to go back to the end of the third quarter. So the last week of September to get to the 10-year yield this low. So we're, we're basically at low 10-year yields for the quarter. So the market's wringing its hands about higher interest rates sooner, but yet the reaction, from at least from a long maturity bond point of view, is interest rates have actually come down uh, in the last few weeks. <laughs> and and that's flatten the yield curve. I'm starting to hear about this flatten the yield curve, but I hate to get too deep in the weeds to all of our listeners. And I told Kyle this week, well, if they keep doing this with the 10 year yield, if they keep bringing down long, long term yields, long maturity yields and shorter maturity yields stay the same, they're going to start talking about an inverted yield curve. And they start talking about inverted yield curve. They're going to start talking about a recession. Well, we've got to flat. We've got to flatten it first before we can. Well, it's it is flattening. It is flattening. Yes, it's flattening, but we're not we're not inversed yet. But but here's the other thing: the thing that we can't take away is from every. You know, we've got the Omicron. We've got that new variant. We've got the Fed and and their Fed speak. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, we're seeing still very productive economic data. We're still seeing. We're still seeing consumers out there buying consumer confidence. No, uh, no, consumer confidence has come down. But uh, it's still, but it's still no, at yeah, an but, elevated level. Yeah, but it's but it's come down. Yeah, Joe, you want to add something? Well, no, I mean, you also we haven't even talked about jobs. Friday, they had the jobs number that was lower than expected. Right. Well, the, the, well, the, the but, job, but the participation the rate went up. So okay. that's right. The participation yep. rate was the highest it's been since March no. of 2020. Nobody and, really talked about that, other than Morgan Stanley guy on TV Friday. Well, we're, so. we're talking about it because the one thing, the one unemployment number that I always look at is the U6, which is really, I, th- I personally believe is the true unemployment number, and it came in at 7.3, and it, it really came down, so that is a positive. More people are getting back to work. Yes, the total number of hires was what, 240? 210, 210,000. So it was less than half of what was predicted, but we've also seen the past, the prior two months employment reports they were uh it was raised in total i believe 82,000 between the two months and so even though the, the the number of new hires was well below expectations when you look at the unemployment rate i believe was at 42 or 4.2% which is a 21 month low and also the from that report uh showed that 594,000 people entered the labor force the most in 13 months. Workers put in more hours, which boosted aggregate wages, which should play into helping consumer spending. So if, okay, so so we're increasing employment. I think the reason the confidence number, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Kyle. No, I think okay. the reason that confidence is, has been affected, it's this inflation. It's what's happening at the gas pump. That's right. It, it's what's happening in the grocery stores. That's, and so we get these higher wages, which is nice, but how much of these higher wages are just being offset 
by higher prices for food and fuel. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 net, the, the net result is basically zero because you have higher wages, but you have higher costs. And so you're not actually feeling any wealthier every time you get your paycheck. You're not making any more money, but wages have been going up and you have more people working. So even though consumer confidence might have come down a little, it's still elevated. People are still shopping. I know the Black Friday results and the Cyber Monday results were not as good as anticipated. But guess what? Because of the supply chain bottleneck, shopping has occurred a lot sooner this year. And so a lot of people have already finished their holiday shopping before they even got to Black Friday or Cyber Monday. And, and the markets used to focus on that number in a normal situation where we're not dealing with a a global pandemic or a supply chain bottleneck. But I would say that Black Friday's results and Cyber Monday's results, they mentioned it. It didn't get a lot of fanfare, didn't get a lot of airplay because the variant was on in uh, basically in in basically the barrel to be focused on and then what the federal reserve said or jerome powell said on tuesday to congress well the other thing that powell did mention what 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 is the magical t word that he took away on inflation yeah how many how many times have we've been talking about this that was a the last year we've been talking about it now he said that's really off the table they're not kind of redefined it. So the Federal Reserve has come around as something that we have been saying now for a number of months that we didn't believe that these numbers were necessarily transitory. Maybe Kyle did. Could throw Kyle under bus a little bit. <laughs> what's, what, what's His do? face what, what is, is getting red now. What, what is go. an older What is an older brother going to do other than throw the little brother under the bus whenever they get a chance? No, I said some aspects are transitory, but higher oh. higher wages. The higher wages that companies are going to have to pay to get bodies into work, I think that's going to be around to stay because it's very it's it's easier to give someone higher wages, and it's really tough to take it away and so that becomes permanent so you have more permanent wage inflation which could again drive more permanent inflation for certain products but i just want to say something anecdotally because my wife pointed this out who you know does the grocery shopping is that she noticed several components of what we buy on a weekly basis significantly come down in price she noticed some ground beef dramatically decreased in price and other products that we buy she was quite surprised to see a significant price drop and she i mean she made that comment to me this past week so i was like well maybe things are moderating in certain areas but obviously gasoline is not and i don't think it's going to be anytime soon speaking of labor and wages one particular industry that's still lagging is entertainment restaurants over the holidays the Kyle and, and his wife and I met for a beverage, and we did notice a labor shortage at a particular yeah, well, local yeah. establishment. There, there's still going to be there's still labor shortages. I mean, there's still a lot of people that are that are sitting outside the workforce, and I and I've been hearing a lot more this past week about this work from home. And is yes, it might be more efficient, but is it are you getting more productivity? And can you really manage employees remotely effectively? And so they were really focused on the federal government and how much of the federal workforce has been working from home and how much money we're spending in taxes. Some areas you can, some areas like entertainment, restaurants, et cetera, it's tougher to be more efficient because it's a, it's a service industry type thing. Now, so. Google came out this week and extended their deadline right. for people coming back to the office. I don't remember, I don't remember seeing what that deadline has been extended to, but it's now it's no longer like 
the first week of January like it was before. All right, well, let's take our next commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to leave your comments and like the show. So switching gears coming from the bottom of the hour break, um, kind of want to talk about what we've been doing in our offices and what we've been discussing and preparing the portfolios going into the new year. And one thing we did this past week, and this is all just you know, solid investment guidance and education from the Money Wise guys, particularly, obviously, if you have a taxable investment account, is taking a look at your portfolio, knowing what you own, as Joe always says, and as we echo his same sentiment, knowing what you own, but going through and doing what is called tax-loss harvesting, where you sell your losers to capture those realized losses to help offset other realized gains that you have accumulated this tax year to help you save on your bill to Uncle Sam. And that is one thing that we did in our individual stock portfolios this past week for our taxable clients to capture a handful of stocks that have been losses in the portfolio so far for the year, but didn't have many. So we found everything that we could and uh, we scraped those losses to help offset all the gains that we've generated in the portfolio. And so we recommend anyone listening to the show that has a taxable investment account for you to be doing the same because you have to the end of the year to get that done. So I must say, in a week like we just had, you're thinking about all the different gains that we have in our portfolios and some very substantial ones. And it was, at times, it's like, hey, you want to pull the trigger on a few of those because you don't know how much farther this might go, This what we've had in the last week. Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of, a lot of other advisors are probably feeling the same way, uh, with the gains in their portfolios. And, uh, though I don't think this is going to get, I mean, I don't think we're gonna get a 20% correction here in the last three. We got 19 trading days left. Uh, and I think you've done some measurements, Kyle, yes. how we, how far we are off the highs. Well, uh, Looking at the Dow Jones Industrial Average from its – and all the intraday highs occurred the first week of November. And mm-hmm. so that's where we've seen the absolute highs so far for the markets this year and of all times across the board, first week of November. So from the intraday high in the Dow, which occurred first week of November, the Dow closed Friday down 5.4% from its intraday high. The S&P 500 is 3.8% off its intraday high back the first week of November, and the NASDAQ is down 6%. So a technical, traditional correction is a 10% down move from the recent high. That's that's the media's created minimum 
well, threshold and, and, is typically 10%. And that's, and, and I've answered several calls this week and, and talked to investors and I reminded them, Oh, we're in a correction. I said, well, by certain definitions, we're not because usually it is 10%. So just remember that if you say correction, be careful how you use that two or three or four or 5% in most definitions is not a correction to the stock market. But what we've also typically seen, and we talked about earlier, the sh- earlier in the show, as far as the algorithms where we have fewer buyers, uh, obviously in the market right now, and a lot more of the renters of stocks and the algorithms that are reacting these knee jerk reactions to the fed statement to Congress this past week, to the new Omicron variant. Mm-hmm. And this knee jerk reaction is to kind of sell first, ask questions later. And we've seen this, this extreme volatility this past week, probably the most volatility we've seen all year, right. but so, I still don't think that the year in rally is still out of the question because November, which was very unusual about November, is that November, I, I believe, Jeff, I know you don't have the numbers right in front of you. I do. It's not a positive month. The Dow was down three and three quarters percent for the month of November. The S&P was down less than one percent. And the NASDAQ was actually up a quarter of a percent for the month. I would call it flat if you're going to do it from, from, a, from the S&P point of view. When you figure in dividends, uh, one month's worth of dividends, it, it's just, it was just flat. But that's an unusual November because typically after you get but all that trip, happened in the last Halloween. few days. I mean, that's true. Big fr- I mean, it was Black Friday, and Monday. then we had the weekend. Monday was up, if I uh, remember correct. Tuesday, and then Tuesday was, was down. down, and then the month ended. Right? Yeah. So all the entire month was fine until we got the news on Friday in a half day trading when there's hardly anybody in the office. And the machines are programmed to look at words. And when they saw words like new variant and uh, appears to be more serious, when they see these kinds of words, the machines do their thing. And the hedgies that were in the office did their shorting. And so now we've, it's continued all week long. You start off, you have one morning way up and it stays that way. You this, I believe on Friday, the market was reacting actually positively to not so great unemployment numbers. And then it rolls over around lunchtime and into well, the end of the day. You had DocuSign yeah. also that. I don't, well, yeah, that contributed. But we don't know. We don't own DocuSign. Right. It shouldn't be any surprise to anyone that the stay at home stocks have lost their luster. I mean, they, they lost their luster probably a few quarters ago and the Democrats have made it clear that they are not going to shut down the economy the way it was shut down in March, April, May of 2020. There's, it's no way that that's going to happen. So essentially we're rewriting the pandemic playbook. I've seen a couple of articles on that too. Is, is what is going on with the pandemic playbook in this last week? There's a transition. It, you know. Well, I, I think I, I think what we've we've learned as a country is that the lockdowns is not the way to go. I mean, especially when I believe I heard a statistic this past week that up to eighty two percent of people here in the United States have been fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And so, and and I remember when the pandemic first started and the vaccines first started rolling out, the CDC I believe said if we can get seventy to seventy two percent fully vaccinated, then we're good, and then the rest of the herd herd immunity can take over. Well, if we're at 80-plus percent now, 
know, we should already be at the point of herd immunity. So like Jeff was saying, the, the, the economy is not going to be shut down again. We, we learned from that playbook that that was not a smart thing to do. And I think hopefully the federal government's realizing that all of this stimulus, all of this cash, all these taxpayer dollars that went out was maybe a little too much for yeah. too long. That's I, caused I think it slow down in the recovery. I think at this point, in my opinion, the movement of the market now, to me, appears to be more, it's 80% Fed and interest rates and inflation rated, weighted, and maybe 20% the, the whatever's going on with, with COVID. Because if you take Friday's decline on Black Friday and then Mon- the following Monday's recovery, recovery. It, it, it's a few hundred points, the difference between the two. And now all the rest of this, to me, is is the market wringing its hands about about hey, guess what? The tapers happen, happening faster than usual. The other thing I thought was really interesting on Friday. Did y'all catch that article that the International Monetary Fund is is out pounding the hammer on on Federal Reserve Chairman saying that they got to raise interest rates sooner rather than I read later? that. Did yeah. y'all see that? What the heck does the IMF have to do with? with trying to influence policy in the U.S. I was like, give me I, a I, break. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I did not see that. Because their markets, the international markets are doing so well. Well, how about all the negative interest rates in 10-year in tenure in, instruments in bonds. Yeah, it's like in debt. France or Germany? Germany. Go look at, and, they're, and they want to beat on us because they're, they're not, not going to be teaching that, an econ class anytime. Yeah. But but, but to add on to that, Jeff, I didn't see that article, but I did read an, an article earlier this past week that talked about internal talks of interest rate coordination between the other major oh. economies. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I think maybe this is what the IMF was was trying to get at. Was this part of this article? Not that article, but a different article I read where they were trying to do coordinated interest rate movements between developed nations and their economies. I'm like, uh, no, we're, we're, we're sovereign. We're completely independent. So we're, I, I was kind of curious that did any of like, did, did that little, did that particular article? Cause I think the market really turned when I saw that come out this morning and go negative and stay negative for the remainder of the day. I don't know if, if again, the machines ran wild with the, you know, they said scrubbing, interest rates are going to be news. Well, here's the going to increase faster. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to get we're going to have more information about this variant. So far, everything we're hearing is maybe more contagious, but definitely not as dangerous as the Delta. So I think once this more official news comes out, I think this would give a nice boost. But again, that's I think it's only twenty percent. That's the twenty percent of the story right now. Yeah, but but, but the Fed, but the Federal Reserve, he said what he needed to say. He got rid of transitory. He he gave. He definitely telegraphed. Hey, we can speed up this taper, and most likely we're going to. So that got through the market, and so maybe this past week we've been seeing repositioning of portfolios mm-hmm. for that exact scenario. But how it doesn't take weeks and weeks to reposition portfolios in anticipation of potentially increasing the speed of the taper. But like Chairman Powell said, we've been telegraphing this forever. This should be no shock to the market. Let's take our next commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the MoneyWise pad- podcast through Apple Podcast, where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So when our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program, you know, I brought it up on last segment about taking, taking stock of what you own. Know what you own. Now that we're in the last month of 2021, and for all intents and purposes, everyone's had a really good year. And we've talked about this on past shows about getting complacent in your portfolio. You get your monthly statement, you've made money, everything's great, but you've kind of forgotten what you own and why you own it. Or you're working with somebody that just has a buy it and hold it, set it and forget it mentality, or they're not an active money manager like we are here at Davidson Capital Management. You know, it's up to you as the investor to go in and, and look and understand what you own in your portfolio, looking at your allocations. Am I overweighted in a particular industry? Do I have much, too much technology? Do I not have enough? Do I not have enough healthcare uh, stocks in my portfolio? Do I have more than 5% of my investable net worth in one stock? I mean, these are the types of things you need to go and look at in your portfolio. Do I have unrealized losses that I can take? to offset my realized gains to help me with my taxes if I own a taxable account. These are all important housekeeping things that you need to be doing in the last month of the year. I can tell you what we've been doing here at Davidson Capital Management as we have been neck deep, not only in just continuously vetting every single security that we own in every single portfolio at Davidson Capital Management, but we're thinking six to eight months down the road from an allocation standpoint, from an asset class participation standpoint, to vetting our securities, to, to determine whether or not we want to continue to own them when we go into the new year, and if not, which ones we want to replace them with, and formulating our strategy for a higher inflationary environment, higher interest rate environment. And really what I've been saying to all clients I've had conversations with is to buckle up, because particularly from January to the midterms, we can see significant amount of volatility and making sure you have your emotions in check and understand that we feel as professional money managers and all of our 70 plus years of combined experience that we've got some choppier waters ahead going into the new year. Well, Kyle, you bring up a really interesting point. The only thing you really can control as an investor, yes, you can control your allocations and your portfolio, but controlling your emotions. And we say it all the time on this show is sometimes you'd be better off. Imagine how easy your life would be if you just didn't even turn the TV on for the last week. You went about your day doing your job, and you, you didn't watch the, what do you call it, the financial entertainment press or whatever, Kyle, and you, right. and you got up on Monday and went to work and came back Friday. You know, your blood pressure probably be down a little bit too, but <laughs> well, but that's, think about but that. that. But that's what we get paid. I mean, that's why our clients hire us, because they want the team – of professional money managers that are sitting on that wall that use all of our decades of experience of being in the trenches and helping them separate their emotions from the market, which is very, it can be very difficult to do. But I can tell you our most successful clients that I've seen in all the years I've been doing this 
are the ones that have the best handle on their emotions, that, that maintain that long-term perspective, that trust our strategy and what it is that we're doing, because I don't know of another firm that has a 30-plus year track record that can prove their investment management philosophy and how it's performed in every single kind of market condition you can think of since late 1989 and interest rate environment. But that's the key at the end of the day is keeping your emotions in check and maintaining that long-term perspective. So if we end the year basically where we are now, we'll have a 20, you know, the S&P will be up more than 20% with dividends and we'll mark three straight years in a row. That we've had double digit returns uh, that this hasn't happened. We had 15, 16 and 17, I believe were three up years in a row. And we all know what happened in 2018. Uh, 2018 was going fine until the fourth quarter, and which pretty much ruined the year. It was basically a flat year. Uh, I know that we're going to be talking a little bit more as the, we get closer to the end of the year, our, our outlook for 2022, but I definitely uh, agree with Kyle's sentiments that uh, 2022 is going to be choppy. Uh, it, is, it is not uh, a year at this point that I believe uh, that you can be aggressive in stocks, you know, we have not been to our maximum asset allocations to stocks in any of our asset allocation models since February of 2020. You know, we're, we're approaching almost two years since we've had maximum asset allocations in our stock in our in all of our stock portfolios. Uh, I think another thing to take a look at in in everyone's portfolio is another asset. Since we talked a lot about, uh, we we said a few things about individual stocks, but I think also looking at maybe particular asset classes that have done exceptionally well, large cap growth, uh, it, especially with in, in the mutual fund space. Uh, there's some, I don't want to use the word scary, but I just did. There are some stretched uh, allocations to some big cap tech names. Uh, and and that kind of gives me reason for pause to to think about reducing in your portfolio's uh, exposure to large cap growth stocks. I know large cap growth is one of our largest allocations, uh, if not the largest allocation in our uh, asset builder accounts. And you know, we're look, taking a hard look at reducing that, uh, not, be, not necessarily because we, think, we don't think that the managers of the fund are, are not good managers because they're fine managers. What's happened is <clears throat> the large cap growth space has become dominated by these, the big five tech names. And in many cases, these mutual funds have substantial portions of their portfolio. It's concentrated in these five stocks. And I think there's, this should be a time for more equally weighting across the board in portfolios, which is where we are really in our, you know, in our, uh, individually managed, managed accounts. Uh, but we're also looking at some, uh, creative approaches to fixed income, uh, which will include some, in, which may include some investments that we've never had before, but have been around for you know at least ten years. Uh, but you know the bond portion of the portfolio. I mean, it was it's been a challenging year for bonds this year. It may be even more challenging for bonds in 2022, and so that's another part of the portfolio that we are going to be taking some more creative. Uh, I will call it really more some creative investments in the coming year. 
Well, and, and then, again, looking at some other potential participation, higher participation in some other asset classes, other, like you said, Jeff, other than large cap growth. But this is what we're spending the month of December doing. I mean, this is what we do as professional money majors for our clients is strategizing for the future to do our best to mitigate risk on the downside, but to be able to participate on the upside to continue to help our clients' nest eggs grow over time and help them maintain a very comfortable retirement. So with that, we're coming up to the top of the hour break. So we're going to take a break, go into the news. And when we come back from the top of the hour, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. I've got my father, John. I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us here at Davidson Capital Management, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Now, if you missed the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past Money Wise shows. And you can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage. So in our second hour of this weekend's program, again, like to use the second hour to go into investor education and the topic for this second hour is really a topic that needs to be on an on a rotation each and every month because it is such a critical topic for investors all across the country to learn, understand and realize when it comes to the point of them selecting an investment professional to work with and what they need to be looking for and how they can research and find out the background and education levels and licensing levels of the investment professional that they're planning on working with. Now, a topic that we have discussed on past Money Wise programs, and I feel like we've been talking about this for years. I think from the beginning of the show. Well, I know that we've talked about this particular subject, again, the differences between a broker, a stockbroker, and a registered investment advisor, but in particular the the research and analysis that the Securities and Exchange Commission is doing when it comes down to the fiduciary standard. Uh, and later on in this hour, I'm going to go into the definition of the fiduciary standard and what stockbrokers, what laws and directions they have to follow working with their clients and what what laws and rules and regulations that registered investment advisors like us here at Davidson Capital Management have to follow, and in particular revolving around this fiduciary standard, because this has been a topic that has been discussed at length 
really post-financial crisis. Um, and the Dodd-Frank Act, which took effect in 2010, put in uh, an actual an actual law that goes into the ability of the Securities and Exchange Commission to create a uniform fiduciary standard, which has yet to actually take place uh, across the financial service industry. And an article that came out of the Wall Street Journal this past week uh, titled SEC uh, Head Backs Fiduciary Standards for Brokers and Advisors again goes into Mary Jo White, who's the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, you know, really wanting tighter standards uh, for financial advisors who recommend stocks, bonds, and mutual funds to individual investors. And for any longtime listener to this program, they understand that your traditional stockbroker is on the financial sales side of the financial service industry where registered investment advisors like us at Davidson Capital Management are on the asset management side of the industry. Well, let me say something right here, Kyle. The word advisor, I think, confuses the man in the street. In the old days, when I was a broker, we were either a broker or a registered representative. Advisors, financial advisors or investment advisors, by definition, we're registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. What has happened is the word registered representative or broker has been dropped by Wall Street, and they have picked up various terms which they really like to use, whether it's a wealth manager or a they like financial advisor. Financial advisor, but they obviously don't say registered financial advisor because they wouldn't be working for a brokerage firm or registered few. investment advisor. So, so, so you the word advisor confuses the investor in the street. It it, it does, and a, again, I don't. I mean, I, I would hate to say that this is just strictly marketing, but it really comes down it is to marketing. marketing. It it does come down to marketing, and it's to convey the idea to a potential to a prospective client that the powers and abilities of that investment professional are above and beyond what they actually legally can do or what they normally do do with you know when it comes to working with their clients and you know last month the labor department is planning its own set of rules to tighten standards on financial professionals who advise on retirement account investments such as 401ks and of course and Bar- president yes, obama, president obama has endorsed these these we haven't had a president get involved and 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 so he came out several months back talking about wanting to have these new standards and and you know really the Department of Labor is going and saying well hey we're putting in these new standards Securities and Exchange Commission why don't you put these standards in as well and Mary Jo White the head of the SEC makes it very clear that you know we're two different regulatory agencies and that we have our own processes and procedures that we have to go through in order to put this into place but that she had, she had stated that she has been intensely studying this fiduciary standard regulations and what exactly the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to do. Now, the fact that she's been intensely studying this for just the last few months, I feel like we've been talking about this for years. So why is it just being intensely studied over just the last couple of months? Well, maybe before we put our listeners totally to sleep using these fiduciary words and whatnot, why not give an example 
of why this should be something our listeners should be listening to. Well, I'm going to have to get to that example after we come back from the commercial break because the the, the story. The no, you didn't check the clock. The 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 real world example I'm going to give, and and it really could apply to some of our a lot of our listeners that are listening right now of what you might run into when it comes to that point in time where you're ready to hop on that horse and ride off into the retirement sunset and you start going out and interviewing investment professionals that you might be planning or or looking to work with. And as we've always advocated on this show, don't get caught behind the eight ball when it comes time to prepare and plan for your retirement as far as the investment professional that you're going to work with. You need to start the interview process six to eight months out, even 12 months out, just so you get all of your ducks in a row because the last thing we would want to see happen, and we've seen this time and time again talking and working with prospective clients coming into Davidson Capital Management, is that they waited to the last minute, they got thrown a sales pitch at them, that sounded so good to be true, too good to be true, but they signed on that dotted line and wound up getting involved in something that they wound up later regretting because they didn't do their proper due diligence uh, and doing the research it, It's re- research that's required before you hire an investment professional. So when we come back from the commercial break, I'll give you an example of going into the differences between suitability and fiduciary standard, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the MoneyWise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing our investor education, um, and again, I, I know we were talking during commercial break that some of this subject matter might be seen dry and boring, but this hour is so critical for any investor to listen and to learn from to protect themselves, to protect the retirement nest egg that they have worked 30, 35, 40, 45 years to build to not get taken by potentially unscrupulous investment professionals that are looking to make a very large and quick buck and big commission and to understand the rules and regulations that folks follow in the financial service industry and how they vary so greatly between that of your traditional stockbroker versus a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management. So I wanted to give you a real-world example, and this comes from one of our clients, this real-world example. Um, Several years ago, we had met, I mean, several, I mean, we're talking six, seven years ago, met with a prospective client who was going to be retiring and had, excuse me, had already retired, had purchased an annuity, very sizable annuity, and the annuity was getting ready to be outside of its surrender penalty period. And they were looking to do something else with it. So they met with us, gave them you know, the, whole, the whole spiel, 
the whole presentation as we do with any prospective client after we did a, a portfolio review and analysis for this prospective client. And I remember distinctly remembering in the meeting, I, I told him, whatever you do, whether you hire us or you hire somebody else, do not buy another annuity. And he said, gotcha. Got it. Understand. So this prospective client goes, leaves our office, follow up with them, don't hear back from them. About 16 months later, we get a phone call, and it was this prospective client. And he said, I need to come in and talk to you. Okay, comes in. Before I even round my desk, he says, you're probably wondering why I'm here. I'm like, sure. Why are you here? He said, well, I should have listened to your advice, and I didn't. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look. And he hands me his paperwork, and what he had bought was another annuity, a variable annuity. And I asked him why. You know, give me the background as to what you did. He said, I called two stockbrokers in New York City. I called two stockbrokers in the state of Florida. I called a stockbroker in San Antonio, Texas. And all five of these stockbrokers all recommended an annuity to me. And he said, after talking to all five of these different brokers, different offices, at different firms in different states, he thought to himself, well, if all five of these brokers are recommending annuity, then this is the direction that I need to go. This is what I should be buying because these five folks don't know each other from Adam, and they don't even work for the same firms, but that's what they're recommending. And, of course, when I relayed to the prospective client who then became a client that the reason why they were recommending it is because it pays the highest commission on Wall Street and explained to him round about the six-figure commission that was paid to these brokers, I just about saw his jaw hit the floor. Well, he wanted a guaranteed stream of income. That is what he wanted. It was important to him to have a monthly check. So when he went to these brokers and said, I want a guaranteed stream of income that I know it's coming in, well, the brokers basically have two choices, both of which are suitable for him. Choice number one is an annuity. Whichever insurance company that brokerage firm uses, they will select that annuity. That annuity will pay the most generous commission there is for a broker on Wall Street today, as far as we know. The other choice to provide guaranteed income is a government bond. In fact, it's the only investment, not the annuity, that can truly say, say it provides a guaranteed stream of income. The only difference being the income can vary because government bond rates will vary with maturities. For the broker, however, the commission on the same portfolio is about 98, 99% less than what he would be getting personally in the annuity. That is why five different brokers from five different firms in four different states all had the same example. They were both suitable investments, and the broker only has to do what is suitable. And that is the whole point of this second hour is to relay real-world examples of the difference between suitability and fiduciary. 
And just to kind of go into that, you know, what is a fiduciary? A fiduciary is someone that manages money for the benefit of, of another called a beneficiary. A fiduciary is bound by law to place the interest of its beneficiary first before the fiduciary's own interest. Now, stockbrokers, also called registered representatives, account executives, financial wealth advisors, and... wealth managers, are not fiduciaries. Even though they have engaged in high-visibility advertising to portray themselves as full-service investment advisors. It's real easy. Ask your stockbroker if he or she holds a Series 7 securities license. If he or she does, then it's, it's probable that they aren't a fiduciary. And you have to understand, a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management are subject to the Investment Advisor Act of 1940, which makes us a fiduciary. Okay? And it's so, so important. I mean, we cannot stress well, this enough in that example, to understand the difference. In the same example, a choice for us between an annuity and a portfolio of government bonds as a fiduciary, we have to go with the government bonds because that is what is best for the client, not what is suitable, what is best as a fiduciary. And a non-fiduciary stockbroker follows only the suitability standard, which doesn't require a stockbroker to place the interest of their client ahead of their own. Under the non-fiduciary suitability standard, a stockbroker need provide only suitable advice to it, to their clients, even if the stockbroker knows that the advice is not in the client's best interest. A non-fiduciary stockbroker, you know, bottom line, they have a fiduciary duty to their broker-dealer, to who employs them. That is who they have a fiduciary duty to, not their client. And it bl I, I can tell you, Dad, when I sit down with prospective clients and I tell them that financial salespeople, stockbrokers, are not required by law to put their interests in front of their own, it blows their mind. But what's, a, what's unfortunate is that individual investors don't understand that there is a difference between what registered investment advisors do, what we do here, versus what a broker does. It was the manager at Bayesian Company that I worked for as a manager that led me to become a registered investment advisor. That you worked as a broker for? Yes, I worked as a broker for them. One day I was analyzing the bond market. I was sitting at my desk looking at this chart, that chart, and he came up to me and said, John, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to figure out what the long bond's doing. And he said, we don't pay you to be an analyst. We pay you to sell securities. We're not in the business of analyzing markets, managing money. We're in the business of selling securities. The light went on in my head, and from that day forward, I chose the path of becoming a registered investment advisor. And it all went back to the manager at a brokerage firm and a young broker trying to understand and help his clients. And a registered investment advisor must follow the trust standard, and it's the highest known in law, which requires an RIA, a registered investment advisor, to place the interest of their client ahead of their own to fulfill the critical fiduciary duties of trust and confidence. 
So, again, that's that trust standard versus the suitability standard. And this is why when you go to the big name brand broker-dealers, I mean, you can list them off. There's commercials all over the place, all over television, radio, the computer for these for these firms. You know, you have to understand they're in the job of asset collection, asset harvesting to sell investment products. And it's also important when we come back from the bottom of the hour break to, to go into a lot of the proprietary relationships that are in place with your traditional broker-dealers and mutual fund families and other investment product providers to understand. And really, I think what also led a lot of investors to, to have received advice during the financial crisis of staying the course and why that advice came so much so from your traditional broker-dealer or stock brokerage-type firms. And so we'll get into that when we come back from the, from the commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing discussing that critical difference between your traditional stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, um, I wanted to talk briefly about the proprietary relationships that brokerage firms have. Now, prior to joining Davidson Capital Management, I spent a few years uh, as a mutual fund wholesaler where my clients as a mutual fund wholesaler were stockbrokers. I sold my company's loaded mutual funds to brokers in the state of Texas because that was part of my territory in the state of Texas. And it's important for investors to understand of these relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms. Um, In every single mutual fund family, you're going to have a mutual fund family that has some great mutual funds, some decent to average mutual funds, and some not-so-good mutual funds. Dogs. Dogs. Poor-performing mutual funds. But a lot of these brokerage offices have very limited shelf space of the mutual fund families that they want really prominently displayed in the office. And sometimes in order to get shelf space, there are marketing fees that are paid and things of that nature. Now, again, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s when I did that, you know, when I was a mutual fund wholesaler. Um, It's important to understand that a mutual fund wholesaler's job is to gain a relationship with a broker and to educate them about the mutual funds that are being made available by the fund family and sell them on why they need to be selling these funds to the clients. But it's also important for clients to understand that some mutual fund families have revenue-sharing agreements with brokerage firms where the brokerage firm collects a portion of the management fee being charged by the mutual fund family for those clients' assets to be in there. And really the point I'm working towards is getting back to the financial crisis. 
because when we're meeting with prospective clients after the financial crisis, we always, when we do our portfolio reviews and analysis, I always ask, well, what was the advice and guidance that you were receiving from your investment professional, from your broker during the financial crisis? And 10 out of 10 times, the advice was stay the course. And they were, the prospective client would question me, you know, why was the advice stay the course? Why wasn't it like, let's get a little more liquid. Let's, let's get some money on the sidelines. Let's get some cash on hand. And I really, and again, in, in, in my 17 years of experience, what my mind leads back to is revenue sharing agreements that brokerage firms have with mutual fund families and other financial product providers that if assets are not in these mutual funds, then there's no revenue to share because there's no management fee being generated by the mutual fund family. So if advice coming from brokers to their clients was let's sell, let's get more liquid, then these brokerage firms could be slicing their own throat and the revenues that they're that, that are being driven that they're being driven off of these mutual fund holdings by their clients at these brokerage firms. So it would have seriously cut into their bottom line if it was let's get out, let's get liquid, because now there's no revenue coming from these outside mutual fund families. And it's important for investors to understand. And I can tell you that when we do portfolio reviews and analysis, and particularly there's certain brokerage firms that have affinity, that have a love for very particular mutual fund families. Well, you can basically name a firm, and we will name without even, look, without even looking at the portfolio, not even seeing the portfolio, we could bet the potential client you own one of these funds. From a particular fund family. Just because we've been doing this, you know, in our 26th year of business, and we've reviewed quite a few portfolios in those 26 years, we see a pattern, we see a trend, and because of my inside intimate knowledge of the relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms, it's no surprise. Now, listeners are probably, you know, y'all are probably hearing this on the radio thinking, well, gosh, how can brokerage firms do this? It's suitable. They're in, it's suitable. It's suitable. It's, it's suitable. It, it's they're suitable. not violating any rules. They're not violating any laws. That is the whole point of this second hour is so you understand. There's a great commercial on right now. I love this commercial because it really sums up what we're talking about. And it's these two gentlemen, and he's giving the guidance to the prospective client, and he hands him this giant grain of salt. <laughs> And he hands it to him, and he says, you know, the, we're going to be in this fund, this fund, this fund. And he says, oh, by the way, I get paid a higher commission and higher trailing fees on this because of our proprietary relationship, you know, with these with these funds. And he said, well, you know, shouldn't that be illegal? And he's kind of like, yeah, I, well, no, no, not really. I mean, he kind of has a look like, well, I guess you got a point, but no, it's not illegal. But I'm going to be making higher higher fees off this proprietary relationship that we have with these fun families. And I love that commercial. It's just started playing, so I'm sure our listeners have seen this commercial. Pay attention to it because that is what we are talking about. Well, you know, there's another commercial that the financial consultants are doing in which they hired a DJ in Dallas 
and they cleaned him up, got rid of his dreadlocks. He's really a nice-looking guy. Well, no, that's talking about financial planners, and I have a whole other bone to pick about financial planners, yes, but, which I'll get to. But within this, he looks the part. They put him in a he nice office. the part. They put him in a nice office, you know, glass, uh, everything you would want. He's got the columns. He's got the suit. He's smooth-talking. We, and, and he asked him, would you give me the account? Well, sure we would. And he said, would you like to know what my experience is? And, and I'm a my, DJ. You know, I'm a DJ. And he shows pictures of him, you know, dancing around. So, uh, you know, again, but I think that also comes back to another article, which we're not going to talk about on this weekend show, about just the number of don't, – don't let the number of accolades and awards received by a financial <laughs> professional dazzle you, think, making you think that they have a higher level of expertise or experience and experience than they actually do because again it's all marketing um but you know i will i do want to talk about uh financial planners before we go to the next break because this is something we've also talked about on the show and financial planning has has really become a a really booming industry and there are designations a certified financial planner which is a very difficult designation to get you have to go through a lot of education, a lot of test taking. It is not easy to do. Plus, you have to have industry experience to get the CFP designation. And we're not taking away from that because it's a very prestigious designation. It is. But you have to be very, very careful how this potential financial, how this financial planner is getting compensated because we have seen situations where financial planners are using this financial planning designation as another marketing tool, as a way to sell investment products, as a way to generate commissions. So you have to ask as the prospective client, how are you getting compensated? Are you fee-only? Are you fee-based financial planner? Or are you selling investment products where you're earning a commission and you need to ask those questions and if they're not giving you a straight answer that is when you slowly get up from the table and you walk away you as a prospective client have the right to ask a straight straight up question and get a straight up answer ask them do you have your series seven if they have a series seven pretty good chance they're compensated on commissions and that's when with the whole situation with suitability versus the fiduciary standard. If they say, well, I have my 65, which is to be a, a registered investment advisor representative, without a Series 7 or a Series 6, then they'd be leaning more on the side of fee only. And, of course, at Davidson Capital Management, we are completely fee only registered investment advisors, which puts us on the same side of the table as our clients because the more money we make for our clients, the more money we make for ourselves, and vice versa. We are not compensated based on commission, and being a registered investment advisor means that we are fiduciaries. We have to follow the trust standard required by law to put our client's interest in front of our own. But you have to understand these differences when you sit down with a financial professional to understand who you're potentially getting involved in and don't let a lot of letters after their name on the card dazzle you into thinking that they have a level of expertise and knowledge that they may or may not have. You have to vet them out yourself. You have to dig deeper. As I have said, going back to 2005 on this radio show, 
And, you know, what we've also talked about on the show is the way that you can look up your investment professional that you're thinking of working with or who you're, or who you are currently working with simply by going to Google, typing in the Google search broker check, and that will take you to the FINRA website. And FINRA is the regulatory body overseeing the really the financial sales arm of the financial service industry. You type in your broker's name and it will go to their report. Now, the one thing to keep in mind, and I've seen this, is that we've seen brokers starting to use middle names or different first names to try to get around potential bad reports. I've noticed this, that they make these name changes so you can't track them down as easily, but you still have that tool available as a prospective client to go in and do research on that investment professional to find out if they have any regulatory issues, any customer complaints, what those complaints are involved, to see if they have any personal bankruptcy or personal financial issues, or if they've had any criminal misdemeanor or felony charges in their lifetime. So utilize the tools that are available. Well, we've got to take our last commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So before we went to commercial break, again, spending the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program talking about, again, the critical differences between a stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, and, and, and also at the beginning of the hour talking about how the SEC is still in the process of studying to find out whether they're going to hold traditional stockbrokers to the same fiduciary standard as we are held to as a registered investment advisor here at Davidson Capital Management. And I have a feeling this is going to be an ongoing saga that's never going to reach a conclusion um, because, again, I think that this would put a serious uh, dampening on revenues at traditional broker-dealer firms across this country. So I'm definitely not holding my breath. The fact that this that this provision or, or the discussion of adding this provision has been around since the Dodd-Frank <laughs> Act of 2010, and we're now in 2015, and the head of the SEC, Mary Jo White, has only been intensely studying it for the last few months, I'm not holding my breath no, that anything is going to get done. Going to so what you have to do as an investor, you have to arm yourself with knowledge. That's one reason why we have the Money Wise program and why we're in our 10th year of doing it. But you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to be an educated consumer. And before you sign on that line is dotted, you have to utilize all the, the research capabilities that are available on the Internet. And as we went to the last commercial break, talking about utilizing the FINRA website, which is the regulatory body of broker-dealers, of stockbrokers, 
and doing what's called a broker check. By Googling, broker check takes you right to the website. You type in your broker's name, and you pull up their permanent record. I always jokingly <laughs> say, you know, in From high the school, yeah, in high office. school, you've got your permanent record. Well, in the financial service industry, whether you're a registered investment advisor like we are, or if you're a or if you're a stockbroker, we all have a permanent record called our U4. And it tracks you throughout your entire career. So if you've had run-ins with client complaints, customer complaints, and what those complaints are, to see that if you've actually gotten sued by a former client and actually had to pay restitution, or if the brokerage firm or firm you worked for had to pay restitution. It talks about if you've had any kind of bankruptcies or personal financial uh, issues that is also reported in the U4 on broker check, or if you've had any misdemeanor or felony charges. And, I mean, I know for a fact, just from doing my own research, that we have an insurance salesman here in town that avoided a potential 10 years in prison on a drug felony charge <laughs> because of illegal search and seizure. I found this on broker check. I found this on broker check. I, I found a, a gentleman here in town, we, a prospective client, was getting ready to hand over over a million dollars of his hard work, his life savings, and this financial professional had filed bankruptcy three separate times. Now, I understand people run into financial difficulties. You know, I'm not making light of that. But if you've run into a situation where you've had to file bankruptcy multiple times and you can't keep your own financial house in order... I, as a prospective client, I would be a little nervous turning over my life savings to someone who's a financial professional who can't keep their own financial house in order. There's just no reason for people to do this when this is available to them. That's right. And, and, and again, you're going to go and, and look up financial professionals that have a very clean record, but it's also going to show you what licensing they have, going back to this, that if they have a Series 7, that their compensation can come in the form of commissions. So again, knowing that they're on the financial sales side of the business, um, you know, for us at Davidson Capital Management, having our Series 65 as a registered representative of a registered investment advisory firm, we follow the fiduciary standard that we have to follow as an RIA. I haven't seen numbers. I know once upon a time, I think we quoted there's 15,000 of us and there's over 300,000 of them. Closer to 400,000. Well, I mean, Registered investment advisors is a very small minority in the financial service industry. So you're more often than not going to run into a traditional stockbroker than you are a registered investment advisor. Now, I, I want to just kind of give this blanket disclosure. You know, we're not using this hour to beat up on brokers. There are a lot of good, hardworking brokers. In fact, one of my friends is a broker that, that are, do right by their client, that do a good job. But you have to understand as an investor what type of an investor you are. If you're the type of an investor that likes to call the shots of what's bought and what's sold in your portfolio and when that occurs, you're best suited to work with a stockbroker. That's really what they're there for. They, You can ask them questions. They can give you some advice and guidance. You can bounce investment ideas off of them. They can give you their personal opinion, and they can process the trades for you. If you're the type of investor that doesn't 
want to have that control, that wants to turn over the decision-making on a day-to-day basis to the investment professional, then you're best suited to work with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management. And you have to understand the brokerage industry over the last 15-plus years, because of the pressure they've been feeling from registered investment advisory firms like us, have developed programs to give you that active asset management from either themselves at the brokerage firm or an outside money management firm that they partner with. But you have to understand that your broker is not the person that is making those day-to-day decisions. Your broker is nothing more than the middleman of that transaction. They're getting paid a fee to steer your money to an outside asset manager or to the home office to an asset management group that you will have no relationship with, they won't know you from Adam, and you're paying an extra layer of fees on top to have your broker being nothing more than a mouthpiece in this transaction, where instead of working directly with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management, you eliminate that extra layer of fees. You go directly to the source and you have that personal relationship with that investment professional who's making those day-to-day decisions with your assets, you can look at them in the white of their eyes when you're working directly with a registered investment advisor. So you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to understand those critical differences between a broker and a registered investment advisor and the differences between what is suitable, what brokers follow, and what registered investment advisors follow as a fiduciary and following that fiduciary standard. And if any of our listeners want more education, do not hesitate to pick up the phone and give us a call at Davidson Capital Management at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. For my father, John, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week.